From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we're still thinking about Victor Novasky, who died on January 23rd. He was editor or publisher of The Nation for 27 years, starting in 1978. Author of several books, including a book about his life in magazines. It was titled A Matter of Opinion. We'll listen to our conversation about that book, recorded in 2006. But first, House Republicans are refusing to raise the debt limit, threatening that the United States will default on its bond payments. But the Constitution has the solution for President Biden. That's what historian Eric Foner says. He'll explain in a minute. It's time to talk about the crisis over the debt ceiling the Republicans' refusal to fund the debt they created, and their threat to force the United States of America into default unless Biden does what they want to cut social programs. But there's a solution to the debt crisis in the Constitution. That's what Eric Foner has found. Of course, he taught history at Columbia for a long time. His work on Reconstruction and the Civil War won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. We reached him today at home in Manhattan. Eric, welcome back. Yes, good to talk to you, John. Well, your guest essay for the New York Times op-ed page last week about the debt ceiling got almost a thousand comments. Some of the comments themselves got more than 50 replies. Uh, it was the number six most clicked on article in the Times for a while. So it seems you are onto something here. But where in the Constitution is the solution to the crisis over the debt ceiling? Well, the solution is in a often overlooked uh, part of the Constitution, Section 4 of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment, as you know, was added to the Constitution after the Civil War during Reconstruction. It's mostly known because, because of its first section, which creates citizenship for Black people, indeed for anybody born in the United States, and um, requires that the states uh, abide by the due process of law, equal protection of the law for all Americans, etc. But there is a lot more in the 14th Amendment. It was in a way meant to solve many of the issues that arose out of the Civil War. Uh, what would happen to people who had been traitors? Uh, one of the things the 14th Amendment says is that they're not allowed to hold office anymore if they took part in insurrection or rebellion. It tries to finesse the question of black suffrage as it existed in 1866. But here, section four uh, begins by saying that the debt, the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. The validity of the public debt shall not be questioned. We need to know the original intent of the drafters of the 14th Amendment, and you are, wrote the book about them and the 14th Amendment. The book is called The Second Founding. So tell us who were the people who wrote and then who debated and then who ratified this provision about the validity of the public debt, and what were they trying to accomplish here? 
Well, I'm glad you added that very last little clause. What were they trying to accomplish? Because I am not an originalist. I do not believe that we should be governed now by the dead hand of the past from 150 years ago. Moreover, that there is no important document that has one and only one original intent or original meaning. Uh, nonetheless, it is a legitimate historical question to try to figure out what people were trying to accomplish at the time. And section four here, what they're trying to accomplish is to avoid really where we are now, the danger of repudiating the debt. You know, the federal government to pay for what it does, uh, issues bonds, it borrows money in effect, and uh, pays interest on those bonds and eventually pays the money back to the uh, people who loaned them the money. If it doesn't do that, if it doesn't pay the interest and doesn't redeem the bonds, then it is in default. And this has never happened to the United States government. But uh, it would it appears it would cause a great economic turmoil if that happens. So they're trying to avoid the possibility of the debt not being properly paid. It's in the Constitution that it must be paid. And, you know, my view is that that makes the whole issue over the debt ceiling unconstitutional. And let me just say, yes. debt was a big issue after the Civil War for a very specific reason. Right. The debt issue was overshadowed to a large degree by the big issue of Reconstruction, which is what was going to be the status of the former slaves, who was going to control the South, uh, the aftermath of the Civil War. Yet there was also a big political debate about the results of the financial policy that the Union had adopted in order to pay for the war. Uh, the Civil War cost an enormous amount of money. They borrowed an enormous amount of money. They printed a lot of paper money to help pay for things. And uh, there were those who said that there was too much of that has been done, and particularly uh, a, a debate about some of the bonds that were issued, whether the people who bought them should be paid back their money in paper money, greenbacks, which were deteriorating in value, or in gold. Most of the laws that establish these bonds, the borrowing said, the people who buy this are going to be paid back in gold, but there were some that they left that out. It seems like it was more an omission than anything else, not intended. But uh, the Democrats particularly insisted that the people who had loaned money to the government should be paid back in paper money. They bought the bonds with paper money, uh, the greenbacks, so they should be paid back. Giving them gold would be a big windfall for banks, for rich people, uh, or even ordinary people who had bought these bonds. Aligned with that was the question of what would happen if ex-Confederates came back into the government? Or what would happen if the Democrats in the North won control of the government again, as they had before the Civil War? Would those groups honor the national debt, which had been uh, accumulated? Would they demand the uh, payment of the Confederate debt, people in the South who had loaned money to the Confederacy? So this provision of the fourth section of the 14th Amendment was then also uh, meant to prevent the repudiation of any part of the federal debt uh, and to make sure that the, the Confederate debt was not repaid. That's no longer an issue, although there are plenty of Republicans now who really admire the Confederacy <laughs> and carry Confederate flags around, as was done on 
during the insurrection of January 6th. So uh, who knows? Maybe they will try to pay the Confederate debt. And while they're at it, why not get compensation for the loss of slaves? Uh, <laughs> so you're, you're going, you're jumping ahead of us here. But I'm jumping ahead. But actually, all those things are in Section 4 of the 14th Amendment, that the national debt cannot be questioned. The Confederate debt is kaput. Nobody is going to get that money back. And no money is going to be given to compensate people for the loss of their property and slaves. So the, the bottom line is this. If you don't include increase the debt limit, you are violating that portion of the Constitution. My view is that President Biden, who claims he's not going to negotiate over this, I hope that he sticks with that, has the constitutional right to enforce this and to say, look, uh, the Constitution bars repudiating the federal debt or not paying it. And I have to operate on that basis. If Congress refuses to help, we will just issue more bonds. We'll sell more bonds in order to get the money we need to pay for the government. And the Constitution authorizes us to do that. The Constitution famously is not self-enforcing. The provision says the validity of the public debt shall not be questioned, but then other parts of the Constitution say that Congress is empowered to implement the Constitution. So there seems to be uh, some opening here for Republicans to say, well, we're going to do our constitutional duty. And it would be a violation if they did that of this provision. Remember, early on in Section 1, it says that one of the powers of Congress, one of the roles of Congress is to pay the debts of the United States. They're it supposed to pay that. these it debts. Does say that. Remember, the debt limit is about money that has already been authorized. It's not that they're going out cap in hand to borrow more money at this minute. It's that they've already passed a budget which includes spending for all sorts of things. And in order to implement that, they are going to have to borrow the taxes come in, which help pay for it, et cetera, but they don't have enough to pay for the entire budget. So naturally, they have to issue bonds for treasury bills, which happens all the time. It's to pay for what they already voted to do. It seems kind of odd to vote for all sorts of good little programs and then say, oh, yeah, by the way, we're not actually going to pay for those things. That doesn't seem proper. I started reading the 930 comments on your piece in the New York Times. I can't say I've read all of them. A lot of them took up other parts of the 14th Amendment that you discussed sort of in passing. There was a lot of interest in Section 2, which calls for a reduction in the number of representatives allocated to states that deny the right of vote to any citizens. And people pointed out that, well, Georgia has been taking people off the rolls if they haven't voted in the last two or three elections, and then they show up at the polling place and they're not allowed to vote. Florida had a referendum that gave the right to vote back to felons who had served their sentences, but now the Georgia Republican legislature has, has created all sorts of obstacles to fulfilling that mandate. And various people commented on your piece, aren't these equally significant violations of the 14th Amendment? And isn't it time to reduce the number of representatives allocated to Georgia and Florida? Oh, I have advocated that for a long time. In fact, I am the president of the American Association to Enforce Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. 
Now, it's not a mass movement. In fact, there's <laughs> only two members, myself and Professor Gabriel Chin and law professor at the University of California, Davis. But we argue that exactly that states are now removing so many potential voters from the voting rolls that the penalty of the uh, 14th Amendment Section 2 ought to be implemented. It never has been implemented, even at the height of Jim Crow, when millions of black people were denied the right to vote, the Southern states lost no members of Congress, even though they certainly should have. The NAACP went to court and tried to get it enforced, but the court said, uh, we don't want to be bothered with this, and nothing happened. If some of our listeners want to join the Association for the Enforcement of Section 2. Now, the membership is full. We don't want, we, this is an elite group. We do not want a mass membership. Texas is really the state that, that is most vulnerable there because you need to have a large number of congressmen so that if you disenfranchise, let's say, 10% of your possible voters, so if Texas has 20 congressmen, that means they'd lose two. But if you we're going to take away 10% from Montana. You couldn't do that. They've only got one guy, you know? So yes, that's an unenforced part of the 14th Amendment. Section 3 basically says that anybody who took an oath to of allegiance to the Constitution and then took part in insurrection or rebellion uh, can no longer hold office, local office, Senate, Congress, and president, any office they should be barred. And there has been some discussion of enforcing this against President Trump or ex-President Trump. He, of course, did take an oath to uphold the Constitution and then did encourage insurrection. We know all that. He should be barred from future office uh, under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. In other words, Section 1 is the most important part of the 14th Amendment. It's not the only part. And it was they're all in there for a purpose to try to make sure that the slave regime from before the Civil War cannot be reconstituted uh, after the Civil War, that the victory of the North be put into the Constitution with all its ramifications. It's still out there on the books, ready to be implemented. Eric Foner. He wrote about the answer to the debt ceiling crisis found in the 14th Amendment in an essay for the New York Times op-ed page. Eric, thanks for talking with us today. You're very welcome, John. We're still thinking about Victor Navasky, who died on January 23rd, he was editor or publisher of The Nation for 27 years, starting in 1978, and author of several books, including Naming Names, a book about the Hollywood blacklist that won the National Book Award in 1982. I first interviewed Victor, it was about Naming Names, when it was published for LA radio station KPFK. My goal in life at that point was to write for him and his magazine, and three years later I became a contributing editor of The Nation, and eventually we launched this podcast. In 2005, Victor published the book A Matter of Opinion, arguing that even in the age of the internet and Fox News, independent journals of opinion were vital to the health of democracy. We talked about A Matter of Opinion in May 2006.
This book is about your life in magazines. Uh, when you became editor of The Nation in 1978, what was the circulation at that point? We claimed it was 22,000, but we were unaudited. And my suspicion is it was closer to 20. Closer to 20. And, and what is the audited circulation of The Nation uh, this week, this month? Well, the last time I looked, it was 184,576. <laughs> so uh, I guess we have to call you a success in the magazine uh, business. How, how did you do this? Well, it, I didn't do it, John. You know, I mean, Katrina edits it. Uh, we have great Alex Coburn and Katha Pollitt are great columnists. You are a frequent, contri sometime contributor. Sometimes, sometimes. More frequent. No, it's an, a great team. But in the magazine business, it is true that survival is the ultimate test of success. And The Nation, which was founded in 1865, is America's oldest weekly magazine, while publications like the Saturday Evening Post, Collier's Look, Life, with circulations in the millions, have gone under. This book, called A Matter of Opinion, it's about magazines. Would you call it a how-to book for people who want to start a magazine? Well, I'll tell you, John, you know, I showed the manuscript to my son who read all the three pages, and he said, I get it, it's a how not to. <laughs> uh, but in fact, it started out to be a meditation on the roles of journals of opinion, and then when my publisher, Arthur Carter, sold me the magazine for money I didn't have after ma making me the offer that I should have refused, I changed it from a, a third-person meditation to a first-person misadventure story. <laughs> and uh, it's partly uh, a memoir, a professional memoir, not a personal one, sort of. But it's also partly how to do it, or how not to do it, if you will. And then partly it is, as you said at the outset, the case for independent journals of opinion in the face of this everything else that's happening, the conglomeratization, the Murdochization, the tabloidization, the Oprahification, the simplification, the bureaucratization, the concentration of journalism. And uh, these, these 18th century relics are the uh, number one counterforce, you know, showing what what it could be and should be. Well, uh, let, let me ask you about that argument. Thing, things, have, as you say, have changed a lot since you started at The Nation in 1978. At that point, there was no 24-hour cable news, much less the Internet. Uh, today, on the Internet, you know, a, a, a thousand flowers bloom. Everybody can publish their own blog, which is sort of like a journal of critical opinion. But, but you still think we need the weekly journal of critical opinion, which is printed on paper and sent through the mail, which, as you concede, is very expensive and very slow. Uh, why do you think we still need the nation, as well as the National Review, the Weekly Standard, the, the right-wing uh, weeklies, as well as the left? Well, I'll tell you why I think so in a minute. But, you know, when we started the nation and when I did a, a business plan for it, I didn't include the Internet in it because it didn't exist, or at least not in my uh, vision of it. And um, last year, we got 28,000 paying subscribers to the hard copy magazine who came to us by way of our free website. How many? So Say that 28,000. 28,000. twice as many as came the previous year. Now, when the people first started talking about uh, the blogosphere, they didn't call it that then, they, but when they first started talking about the new information highway, all of these other things, 
they predicted the end of books and particularly the end of magazines because you could make your own magazine out of these various uh, websites and articles that are up there. It's, it doesn't, it's not happening that way. And, uh, of course, the blogosphere is not fact-checked. And, uh, you know, one's tolerance for um, reading articles of a certain length is, at least in this culture, is limited. And that's one of the reasons that the pieces that work best on various websites are short pieces. And, and magazines can run short pieces and long ones, and they've been vetted by editors who not only are looking at the particular piece, but uh, are putting forward a menu of things that uh, you should read together. And there's a gestalt that arises from that publication. And it's a, you know, it's a form that has lasted for hundreds of years, and I suspect it'll be around long afterwards. Victor, one of the things you uh, steadfastly refused to do in your work as publisher of the nation was to turn it into a nonprofit, which would bring in a lot of money in the form of tax-deductible contributions. You've always insisted that the nation remain a for-profit enterprise. I wonder first, has the nation ever made a profit? Well, um, before... I got there in 1978. We were told that there were three years when the nation uh, made a profit, and I kept looking for them, and I couldn't find them. Okay. No one could agree on which three. The last three years, we have taken in more man- money than we spent. But for years, I would go around make a, making a speech, and I would claim that one of the reasons the nation has survived longer than any other weekly magazine is because it's a cause more than a business. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't run it like a business, but we can't say that next year, given the rising costs of paper and the increased postal rates and all of that, despite the fact that I have testified in the past at the Postal Rate Commission and will in the future on behalf of postal subsidies for uh, journals of ideas and opinion across the political board, uh, we can't say that we're going to continue to operate at a profit. We hope that we will continue to grow. This idea of a government postal subsidy for journals of opinion, is this an original idea of yours? Well, I'd like to think so, but uh, actually George Washington was in favor (laughs) of free delivery delivery. of newspapers, which then were the equivalent of journals of opinion. Ben Franklin used to send magazines free through the mail, and Tom Paine was all for it as well. We're talking here about magazines on the left, mainly, but I wonder if you think that magazines of critical opinion are as important to the right as as they are to the left. Well, you know, National Review, was uh, Bill Buckley's magazine, was started around 1956, and they put forward all of these ideas and nourished the ideas, and they also brought together different elements of the right. They called it the fusion phenomenon, but, but actually it, using the glue of anti-communism, they put together the coalition that won Barry Goldwater, the Republican nomination, in 1964, and ultimately nourished these ideas, cockamamie as they were, that uh, Reagan tried to implement when he got elected president. So uh, magazines of the right and left have played extraordinary roles in the politics of this country. And when people say, well, their circulations are tiny, you know, they don't matter, or they preach to the choir, 
they misunderstand the roles of these things. That, that their circulations are tiny, but the quality of the people who read them and the strength of of the ideas that, and the power of the ideas to move their constituencies is quite real. Do you think it's true that the nation is preaching to the choir? Well, if it were true, first of all, I would say there's nothing wrong with that because the choir or the converted, they don't have a chance to read everything. And just like you want a restaurant critic to tell you where to go, we live in a society of opinion trusteeship, and you need the arguments, the ideas, the facts and figures to buttress the, the politics that you instinctively and intuitively adopt. But in fact, anyone who looks at the letters page of the nation would know that if it's the choir, it's the most disharmonious choir in the history of the world. There is more space, for example, between our columnists than there is between the Democrats and Republicans. It's just that we have a different kind of debate going on in our pages. There is more difference of opinion between, the, for example, the radical feminists and the uh, civil libertarians over issues like should pornography be for sale, the uh, arguments between the top-down, old-fashioned socialist planners and the bottom-up Greens and Luddites. There is a cavernous space there, and uh, much greater than the difference between the two parties who have more in common than the Democratic and Republican parties than what separates them important as what separates them is. Well, I, I want to return to this this question of the Internet and the bloggers. Of course, uh, some of our best friends are bloggers, and the Internet, as you point out, is, is full of opinion. It's a great democracy of opinion, millions of opinions. The title of your book is A Matter of Opinion. I, I wonder if you think we have too much opinion out there now and not enough people going out and digging up uh, facts. It is now fashionable to take the position which you have just articulated. One of the loudest exponents of this view is the president of ABC News Television, David Weston, who both says that what we need is less opinion and more objectivity, and that if you spend your time with opinions, you have less time developing the facts. You know, I think, first of all, what that does is it ignores, it it lumps together as opinion everything from Rush Limbaugh, to Bill O'Reilly, to great bloggers, to irresponsible bloggers, to surrealist bloggers, (laughs) and Maureen Dowd and Ann Coulter. It's a, um, a term that is too broad, so you have to define what you mean when you talk about opinion. To me, someone who had a very wise thing to say about this was uh, the late historian Christopher Lash, who said that what we have to do is see information not as the uh, precondition of debate or the clash of opinion, but as its byproduct. And you need these competing views in order to arrive at meaningful facts and, and in order to have a real understanding of what's important and to put things in context. And it's the old debate that went on years ago between uh, the elitist columnist, Walter Lippmann, who believed that the news was out there to be found, or information facts were out there to be found scientifically, and uh, John Dewey, who, who said, you can't do that. What you can do is ask the right questions. 
And sometimes there'll be facts that can be found. Other times that they're contingent. Other times they're you got to ask further questions, and you don't know until you have asked all the questions what the important ones are. Well, I'd like to close by asking you to tell the story of the voicemail you got from the 68-year-old widow in Abbeville, Louisiana. Here's what she said. I need to ask a favor of you. I'm stuck in Abbeville, Louisiana, and I want to move, but I want to move somewhere where I can see a Democrat before I die. It occurs to me that you might be able to rummage up a place where people are actually subscribers to the nation, where I would have somebody to talk to. I don't want their names or anything. I just want a town where there are a few kindred souls. And then she added, and if you could call around noon, I'd be grateful. I'm about to cut the grass. <laughs> so what, what do you make of, of this message and others like it? Well, I think, you know, I've long thought that for, for a lot of people, if you ask them who they are, they identify themselves as nation subscribers. And that this is a community of folk who are pleased to be know that they're not alone and not isolated no matter where they live. Uh, in their views, which are outside of not only the mainstream press, but the mainstream dialogue. And so it's a, it provides a sense of belonging, and it's not, it's not just a matter of therapy. It's a two-way conversation that goes on, and it happens through the letters pages. It happens with events that the magazine throws around the country. It happens with correspondence that doesn't find its way in the letters pages. It happens over the Internet. It happens with nation discussion groups around the country. And uh, it's a growing community. Victor Navasky, we spoke with him about his book, A Matter of Opinion, in May 2006. Victor died on January 23rd. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.